You guys, congrats on uh, beating the rain out of the one time of the year that we have this happen on a Sunday morning. You guys did it. You're the faithful, the few, the proud, the brave. Um, We are going to continue in our book uh, of Matthew in our sermon series called The Cross and the Crown. And what I want to do is give us a little bit of a recap uh, since we're about halfway through. And uh, what, what ends up happening, sometimes you get lost in the weeds, right? Uh, you just, you're, you're going through a sermon series and you're like, yeah, it's the Bible. But sometimes we forget the context uh, or we get, you know, forget the author who's writing. So the author is Matthew, hence the book, the namesake of the book. And what Matthew is doing when he writes his gospel is he is writing specifically to a Jewish audience. Now, why is that important for us? It's important because as we're reading through this, you'll see that Matthew will say different things than what like Mark will say about a same story or Luke or John. Um, You'll see that Mark is a lot more abbreviated, right? Um, Luke's a physician and so who who wrote arguably the book of Acts and you'll see a lot of um, like the miracles and and kind of the interplay of that. Uh, John was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, how is that crazy? You can write that about yourself, the Bible. You can, when you're writing the Bible and you're writing about yourself, you say the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, that is just like crazy, you know? He just got to go, well, God told me to write it, so I'm just being obedient. Like Moses, when he's writing in Exodus, he says, and now Moses was the most humble person on the face of the earth. That takes humility to write that about yourself. Um, anyways, that's, that's a rabbit trail that we don't need to go down to. But what we can see is in the Gospels, it matters that we understand who the author's writing to and why they're writing it. And so what Matthew is doing is he's pleading the case that Jesus is the Messiah. You see it over and over from the genealogy. I don't remember if you guys remember that, but the first week we, we talked about the genealogy. And sometimes what we do is we go, so what? There's a bunch of names in there, you know? Why is this important? Because what Matthew was intentionally doing to his audience is telling us, hey, look at these names. This is proving the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. We all know that the, the Messiah will come from the lineage of David. Then Matthew continues and puts names in there that would, wouldn't be the usual suspects. It'd be people that you and I would probably leave out of our family tree because they were murderous and they were slanderous and they were just like considered for the Jewish people like scum of the earth. Why would you include these people in your lineage And so we see over and over and over again, Matthew pleading the case that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one. For the Jewish people, they're waiting for this Messiah, the anointed one, the rescuer, someone who will come and set them free from oppression, right? But it was this political view that they they had. They were like, you know, we are under Roman oppression. Our, 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 Our own people become tax collectors for the Romans. They're like Benedict Arnold's. They're, we, we, like, God, please rescue us from this treachery that we're under. They're all waiting for someone who will come and set them free so that they can worship freely and express their faith freely and dominate the world and be the chosen people that they were meant to be. And Matthew's writing to this specific audience, yet he's in not so subtle ways telling them, hey, you're expecting this political leader. You're, you're expecting this guy who's gonna ride into town on this stallion with, you know, all the armor and and a jousting spear and he's going to come and like everyone's going to look at him and tremble and bow down and that's not the kind of savior 
the kind of Messiah that Matthew paints the picture of. And I heard a commentator say, even though Matthew is probably the most Jewish audience book, it's probably the most Gentile book. Because what it does is it shows us this contrast that Jesus didn't come just for the Jewish people. Isn't that beautiful? Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Whether you have a Jewish heritage, most of us don't, but that we get to be adopted into a family of the Messiah. And so we're going to pick up this morning in uh, Matthew chapter 16, and uh, we're going to read what I feel like is one of the most encouraging texts uh, for those of us who call ourselves disciples, because if you're like me, you're not a perfect disciple. And we're going to see an example of a very non-perfect disciple in in Peter. Um, So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to start in verse 13. And uh, this is a very well-known text. It's probably one of the most controversial texts as far as Peter's role. Um, But starting in verse 13, we're going to read to verse 20. It says, "Now, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus isn't insecure, all right? He's not asking this question like, I'm wrestling with my identity. I'm, I'm feeling insecure about who I am as, as the Son of God. So will you, disciples, my best friends, will you remind me again of who I am? Will you, will you just speak truth to me again? Okay, that's not happening. Some people read this and say, well, that's what Jesus is doing. But that is far from it, okay? He is he's wanting to see where their faith is. And this is what they answered in verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, just to give us, John the Baptist has already died. He's been beheaded at the hand of Herod. And uh, so some people think that he is John the Baptist reincarnated, so to speak, because John came with many signs and wonders in his ministry. And some are saying, wow, John the Baptist must be reborn and this is him. And because he's doing all these signs and wonders, some would say, no, 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 he's just a good guy. Look at all the good things he's doing. He's a prophet. He fits into, you know, kind of the way Israel wants to go and uh, all these things. So this is what Jesus says in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, the Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. Um, You know, we say Jesus Christ, that's not his last name. Christ means anointed one, the chosen one, um, the blessed one, the Messiah. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, in verse 17. And Jesus answered and blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, it shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Interesting. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you uh, 
that we have the privilege of sitting under your word and being transformed by your word. What a blessed thing this is. And I ask that this morning, Holy Spirit, help us to see what we don't see with our natural eyes. Help us to hear what we don't hear with our natural ears. And help us to understand what we don't understand in our natural thinking. Will you illuminate your word to us? Change us, transform us, make us more like you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Jesus has asked his disciples this question. Who, who, do, who, do you, who, do, who are people saying that I am? And they give them all these different questions. Now, I don't know if you are in the know with, uh, you may not recognize this name right away, but there's a person named Sean Combs. Anybody know who Sean Combs is? He's this rap mogul, and uh, he is a music producer. He's, he's been behind the scenes for many years in the music industry. But here's an interesting thing about Sean Combs, all right? In childhood, he got the name called Puffy. I don't know how that translates. In 1990, he transformed from Puffy to Puff Daddy. In 2001, he went from Puff Daddy to P. Diddy. In 2005, he dropped the P and just went to Diddy. In 2006, he went back to P. Diddy. In 2008, he went to Sean John. You may see some of that clothing in Macy's or JCPenney's or whatever. Uh, in 2011, he went to Swag. Man, how cool do you have to be if you could just call yourself Swag? And to self-proclaim your name, Swag. What should I call myself? I don't, never mind. Okay, don't answer that. 2014, went back to Puff Daddy. Now, anybody know what his, his current name is? It is Love Brother Love. Now, if someone were, this sounds to me like a man who's a little bit of an identity crisis. <laughs> and unlike Jesus asking, who do people say that I am? I would venture to guess that which, with each one of these names, Sean Combs is trying to say, well, this is who I want to emphasize who I am now. When I was puffy, I was childhood, I was the friend, I was the friend of every, you know, my posse, we were all, you know, hanging out, whatever. But then I evolved from just puffy to puff daddy because I came, became more mature and I had to add a daddy to puff. And then, you know, that sounded, you know, kind of, uh, infantile, so I had to move from that to Diddy. And I, it, you know, it's just name change after name change after name change. And every name change has this different identity. But Jesus isn't doing that here. Jesus has one name that he wants us and the disciples to identify with. Now, have you ever done this? Have you ever heard this? I mean, I remember one time we did these interviews in the street. We got a video camera. Marianne and I went down around downtown area and we asked people about Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? Guess what a lot of the answers that we got were? You can probably imagine. Oh, he was a good person. He was a good teacher. He was a religious prophet. He was somebody who taught a lot of good things about love. I got a couple of, you know, like he was a terrible person. He, you know, started religion. Religion's the, the reason why the world is going down, you know, 
those kind of answers, but not a lot of Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, the obvious question for you and I this morning, most of us who identify as believers, but if you're not a believer, if you, if you, if you haven't put your hope and your faith in Jesus as your, as your Savior, you might have a different answer than what Peter may have had here. But ultimately, for you and I, even if we do call ourselves disciples of Jesus, the most important question that we should and can ever ask ourselves is the same question that Jesus asks. Who is Jesus? See, the reason why this is the most important question is because the way you answer this will determine every decision that you make. Will determine every way that you treat every relationship. It will determine your work ethic. It will determine what you do with your money. It will determine how you interact with family members. It will determine how you view eternity and your security. It will determine every last part of your identity. And if there's any wavering in this answer, you'll see it outplayed in areas of your life. Well, I don't really believe Jesus is fully God. So therefore, because he's not fully God, he doesn't fully deserve my whole life. There's areas of my life that I can reserve for myself if Jesus is not the Messiah, if he is not the Christ. So who do you say that Jesus is? Now, here's, here's the, another question that we need to ask this morning is how in the world does Peter come up with this answer. Now we all think it's like, duh, right? Like he's been hanging out with Jesus for years, about two and a half years probably around this time, and all the disciples have. How is it not like a no-brainer that Peter would just answer, like you are, you're Jesus, Jesus. You're like, you're, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, you're the Christ, you're, you're the anointed one, you're the one that's come to rescue us. But it's such an interesting answer what Jesus gives him in this follow-up when he asks him, Peter, who do you say I am? You're the Christ. And then he says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And what that means for you and me, and for any of us who are trying to help people come to know the knowledge of the Savior that we serve, is that flesh and blood is not gonna reveal this to us. No matter how good of a sermon that you sit under, no matter how many books you read, no matter what kind of home you grew up in, if your parents were Christians, if you, if you go to church, if you do all these things, none of that will reveal to you the truth of who Jesus is. It is only the power of God. It's only the Holy Spirit regenerating our broken and dead hearts that lets us speak with our mouths and confess the truth of who Jesus is. And some of us might be in a place where we're kind of coasting on the culture of Christianity. We're coasting on religion to kind of get us through to make these evidences of the truth of who Jesus is be 
evident to other people among us and they go, well, so-and-so serves on a serve team every Sunday and they, they never cheat on their taxes and they do all these good things and they do all the Christian stuff, so surely they must be able to answer and confess that Jesus is the Christ. But that's not what makes your answer legitimate. The only thing that legitimizes your confession of Jesus being the Christ is if the Holy Spirit has come and he's taken your dead heart and he's regenerated it. This word regeneration is kind of like, it's like the, if you were to go to an old junkyard and look for an engine parts. And, and a car that's been sitting in a junkyard maybe 10, 15 years, the engine's all rusted and seized up you try to turn on the crank, the starter, the alternator, it's like, right? Or maybe it just goes, click, nothing is happening. What it needs is an outside force to come into the engine, spray some WD-40 on this, I don't know what the things are, for those of you who are mechanical, get it, get it, it needs, it needs some jumper cables, it needs life, it needs juice, because in and of itself, there's no power in the engine to be able to do what it needs to do. And an outside force needs to come in and say, it's alive, right, like Frankenstein. And it's the same thing with our hearts. Before we are transformed, we can try to do all the outward Christian things. We could try to live the Christian life. We could do all the good things that the Bible says that we're supposed to do. But without the power of the Holy Spirit coming in into our hearts and boom, making us alive, the confession of Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, has no power. It's an empty and dead sentence on your lips. Here's what Paul says about those who would try to confess Jesus as Lord without the power of the Holy Spirit. He says this in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. He quotes the psalmist and says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Ooh, that is such a slap in the face to our culture today. What Scripture is saying is basically we have no good apart from Christ. And when we seek to do good, it's only because God is drawing us closer to him. It's not because we're such good people wanting to do good things. He continues this in 2 Corinthians and, and, and saying why we don't confess Jesus as the Christ. Why do unbelievers, why do they do what they do? Why, why do they continue to go their way? Why do, when you get on Facebook and try to tell them about how great Jesus is, they're like, oh, you're so stupid. Why do they say things like this? He explains it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, in their case, the God, little g, the enemy, Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's the enemy. So, and some encouragement to you guys who are trying to win somebody over on Facebook, it's not going to work. <laughs> have you ever argued anybody into the kingdom of God? It doesn't work. And if you have, it's not real fruit. The only lasting fruit 
The only lasting change is by the God of the universe conquering the God of this age and this world and taking the blindfolders off. And, and finally, this is what Jesus says about those who are able to confess him as Christ. If we were to go back in Matthew chapter 11, 25 through 27, it says, at that time, Jesus declared in a prayer, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. That gives us a clue of who God is wanting to pour out salvation in the hearts. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Further evidence that it's God who does the saving. Further evidence that it's God's grace in our lives who comes and takes this old dead engine of a heart and he says, I will have grace on whom I will have grace and I'm gonna, I'm gonna regenerate this heart not because it was sitting in the junkyard and it was doing such a good job sitting in the junkyard. No, because I want to have grace on this old engine. <laughs> Comes the life of God. You know why this is so important for us? Because it doesn't let us boast. It doesn't let us say, man, I saved myself. It doesn't let us say, I was the one who sought God. No, scripture says very clearly, we were the ones who were in enmity with God. It means this mutual hate, this mutual war was going on between our flesh and the spirit of God. But yet God in his grace and mercy chose us when we were still enemies of him. And for Peter, confessing him, Jesus, as the Christ was the mercy and the grace of the Heavenly Father revealing to Peter who did not deserve to understand who Jesus was, yet bestowed on him a grace. Isn't that good news for you and me who call ourselves Christians that we've been given this grace that we don't deserve? And we didn't save ourselves. We didn't have to earn it. We didn't have to do anything to prove to God that we should deserve some, some kind of grace to regenerate our hearts. It was in spite of the fact that we were sinners. It's in spite of the fact that we didn't deserve it, that God came. And that's such good news. Now, here's some truth about knowing who the Christ is. If you, if you remember here, you, you see this little interplay where Jesus is speaking directly to Peter and Peter's speaking directly back to Jesus. And then Jesus does something interesting is that he calls Peter, who we know as Peter, a different name. Originally, Peter's name was Simon, or Simeon, if you want to get like a little bit more technical, um, was the Hebrew way of pronouncing Simon. And all of a sudden, there's this exchange of a nameplay difference. And I would say, suggest, I love this because what it tells us is when we experience the Christ, when we acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, when we submit our lives and lay under his lordship, there's this exchange, but it changes who we are. It changes us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It changes us from having just an earthly father and being born of the flesh and blood 
trying to figure things out in our own strength, and it brings us into a kingdom that is no longer based on our own strength, having an earthly father, now we have a heavenly father. And we see Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, he calls him Bar Jonah. If you know what Bar Jonah means, Bar is son of, and Jonah was his dad. So what he's saying here is, Simon, you used to be just the son of Jonah. But now, I'm gonna change your identity. I'm gonna change who you are because my father has revealed the truth of who I am and that's gonna change you from the inside out. No longer are you gonna be known from the flesh. You were just like, there's, I mean, people did that to Jesus, right? Oh, that's Joseph's son. What could he do? Or the whole thing of the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. That is not true of us who call ourselves Christians. We get to have a new adoption as sons and daughters, and we are changed forever. It means that we live not just a life of a reformation and giving ourselves over to the submission of Christ and continue repenting from our sins. Yes, that's part of it. But now we live in a victorious life. We live in a life that the Holy Spirit empowers us and fills us, and we're no longer known after the flesh. We're now known of the things of the Spirit. It changes us. It transforms us. Ask yourselves the question, are the evidences of me being reborn, me being renamed, me knowing the truth of who the Christ is, has it changed my identity, or am I still trying to go back to the old ways? Kelly, Bar Tom, that's my dad's name. That's, see what I did there, play on the, okay, you guys got it. Am I trying to live in this lane? When the revelation of the truth of who the Christ is fills my heart, do I walk in this lane now? Something we're not going to get too deep in, but uh, this, if you don't know, is a very controversial verse about who is Jesus talking about when he says, on this I will build my church, on this rock. Some denominations have argued for thousand years that what Jesus is saying is that I'm going to build the truth of who my church is on the identity of Peter. I believe that what Jesus is saying is that he is going to build his church on the identity of the Christ, of the Messiah. Now for those of us who lump ourselves in to this group of people who call ourselves the chosen ones, the disciples of Jesus, there's some good news in here for us. The two, two things is, Jesus mentions these keys of the kingdom. Now, what is that? Is that if you grew up in a Pentecostal church, you're like, ah, the keys, right? The keys of the kingdom, hallelujah. It's like, what does that even mean? I'm gonna unlock stuff. What are you gonna unlock? Well, let's put some handles to that this morning. If we say that we're in Christ, if we, uh, like Peter, have been revealed to us by the Father who the Christ is, the Messiah is Jesus, then that comes with the keys of the kingdom. What are the keys of the kingdom? That means that we carry Christ in us. The Spirit of Christ is alive in us. That means that we could pray for people to see them get healed. That means that we could preach the good news of the gospel. And that means that the good news of the gospel, when it falls on deaf ears, we hope that the Holy Spirit will come and what we've been talking about, regenerate dead hearts and open up dead ears. 
It's not just me or Mike or Isaiah or Fernando or Ryan who who preaches the gospel. We're all called to preach the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And we've all been given the keys of the kingdom to say, this isn't, I'm not trying to preach like name it and claim it stuff, okay? But what I'm saying is there should be something within us that stirs in us to be able to say, no, I have the kingdom of God living in me. I mean, I met with a man yesterday. I came in here to do some stuff on the computer He was hiding in this little corridor in the back. Scared me like so bad because I'm coming walking down. The rain was falling and he jumps out and he's he's smoking cigarette. I'm like, like, man, what are you doing? He goes, I don't know, I'm sorry, right? We both kind of like, ah! And he, where am I telling the story? Oh, because, and then he says, I think it was like, he was nervous and he's like, "Uh, what time's church start, right? I'm like, yeah, right, whatever, dude. And I said, he goes, man, I, I just need to come to church. Do you guys have a service on Saturday? And I said, we don't have a service on Saturday right now. Uh, we, have, we gather together on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. The moment I started speaking about our gathering, he just starts weeping. This guy's in a desperate place. I said, man, we would love to have you there. Even though you scared me, we would love to have you there. Opportunity to pray for him. Why? Because there's something inside me that's so good, my own flesh. That was like a God moment. That was God orchestrating that thing. The other good news of of living in the truth of who the Christ is for us, the church, is that Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, I've heard this as a kid, grew up in the church, heard this over and over again. And for some reason, my understanding was a defensive posture. This understanding that the gates of hell will not, like somehow we'll just be able to sustain and we'll be able to survive as Christians. That is the quite opposite of what this is saying. It's saying, what does a gate do? Let's not get into Trump stuff, okay, right now, and the walls and all those kind of things. But what a wall, what a gate does is it keeps stuff out. There would be an army who would come against a gate of a city and they would get the ramming, the battling ram, is that what it's called? Boom, boom right? And they would do a chant, boom, right? And hopefully that gate was strong enough to withhold the onslaught of the enemy coming. And what Jesus is telling Peter and what he's telling you and me, for those of us, again, who identify as Jesus as the Christ, he's saying, Christians, disciples of me, church, listen to this. You're meant to be on the offense. You're meant to take the kingdom of God out of the walls. And when you do it, when you do it through my name and based on the truth of who I am, let me tell you something. The gates, the defensive walls of hell and the kingdom of darkness will not prevail against the onslaught of the kingdom of light. Isn't that good news? Yeah, somebody, come on. And so that means that what? We're meant to take an offensive posture as Christians. So many times you, we go on a mission trip to Mexico. What do we pray for? God, please protect them. Let them not blow out a tire. God, my kids are going, but Lord, protect them. Good prayers. But better prayers are, God, let the kingdom of God be advanced through them as they go this week. Yes, keep them safe, but let them be on the offensive. 
We're not called to a defensive faith, friends. We're called to step out in faith and take the kingdom of God with us so that we can pray with somebody who scares us to half to death. Holy cow, I only got three minutes left. What are you guys doing? All right. Last, this is, okay, try to be, we'll try to hurry up here. Another truth about this is the fact that Peter's perspective of the Christ all of a sudden is crazy. It's, it's lacking. Now, here, here, read this with me. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. The, the, I mean, Jesus just says, blessed are you, Peter. Good job. You know what? Come to the front of the class and show everybody what's up, right? Let me, where's your name? Oh, there it is. Let me get a gold star and there you go. Go tell your parents when you get home, you got a gold star in class today. Then, immediately falling, verses 21 through 23. And this is why I said this verse, this, this scripture gives me such hope. Uh, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Verse 22, here it is. Now, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Like, imagine the audacity. Well, I should rebuke him. I got to the front of the class. Now I know everything, so... I could tell him what's up, right? He began to rebuke Jesus saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Then Jesus says some really encouraging words. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter has a stellar moment. He's at the front of the class. The other disciples are like, uh, yeah, what Peter said. Yeah, he's amazing. Oh, good job, Peter. Jesus like, he blessed are you. And then all of a sudden he goes from the front of the class to the corner of the room with a dunce cap on. Boop. <laughs> if you don't know what a dunce cap is, that's like old school back in the day. They used to like shame people into learning. I don't know how that works somehow, but. And Peter does what we all do from time to time. is you know, hand and mouth, foot and mouth, just blows it. And I don't know about you, but to be called Satan by the Savior, this seems a little harsh or devastating. <laughs> Now, why is Jesus being so contrasting, so acute in his way of dealing with Peter? Because he tells Peter, you do not have the mind of the kingdom. And basically what Peter's doing is he's saying what a lot of preachers say on TV or on Instagram, basically saying, if you come to Christ... Your life will have purpose and meaning and your potential will be released and you won't have suffering anymore. All the junk we see preached in this day and age. Instead of, if you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself. Lay down your life. It's going to cost you not just something, it's going to cost you 
everything. For those of us who don't identify as Christians, I don't want you to ever hear from this up front. If you come to Jesus, your life's going to be so much better. Come to Jesus, he's going to fill your bank account, hallelujah, in Jesus' name. And come to Jesus, and every relationship that you have is just going to be somehow perfectly mended. Come to Jesus, and you'll have no more troubles. That sickness that you're dealing with in your body is just going to go away somehow because you became a Christian. Bull, loney. Come to Jesus and surrender all of who you are. Come to Jesus and your relationships might get a little tougher because now there's this gap between you and those who were in the kingdom of darkness. Now you're in the kingdom of light. There's difference now. Come to Jesus and your finances might suffer because now God's calling you to give Oof. Come to Jesus. But know this, when you come to Jesus, there's life and life to the fullest. There's meaning and there's purpose. There's adoption into a community and a family. There's a heart that's been regenerated. And Peter doesn't have his mind on these things because he hears Jesus say things like, follow me and you will suffer. Follow me and you're gonna have to lay down your life. By the way, I'm gonna have to go to the cross at the hands of the religious people, the people who we think should be doing all the good stuff, the people who our society deems as, yes, well done, you're following the laws of God. These are the people who are gonna put me on the cross. And Peter says, no. That's not what I understand what the Christ is supposed to be. The Christ is supposed to be the one who makes my life all better. And he's gonna come, remember? Like, we've been, we've been promised the Messiah's gonna take, he's gonna kick the centurion's butts. He's gonna tell the Romans, get out of, get out of Judea. We're gonna reestablish who we are as the Jewish people. Doesn't happen that way. It's an upside down kingdom that you and I are called to live in, to follow Christ is to deny yourself. Jesus finishes this and says in verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, he's making an example of Peter. Peter says a stupid comment, and then he says, no, 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 Peter, just hold on. Look at Peter, everybody. Uh, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and would follow me and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's the truth about the Christ, about the anointed one. The Christ cannot just be your savior. He has to be your master, your Lord. If he's not both, you don't have a right understanding of who the Christ is. We love the truth of who Jesus is and our savior and that he set us free that he came to rescue us. But when Jesus says harsh sayings, unless you hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your family, in, compar in comparison to your love for me, you have no part of me. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, well, that's weird, I'm out, see ya. Unless you take up your cross, It'd be like Jesus saying, unless you go to the electric chair, 
the gas chamber, the hangman's noose, the firing squad, then you have no part of me. Does that sound appealing? Does that sound like what's being preached today? That's the truth. Let me just end with this last little illustration. You know what a flexitarian is? No? All right. I'm going to about school y'all right now what a flexitarian is. Some of us are called vegetarians. Some of us are, God bless you if you're a vegetarian. I tried that for like three days. <laughs> didn't, didn't really work. But hey, if that's whatever floats, you do you, boo, okay? Um, there's, there's vegetarians who became upset because there were people who were calling themselves vegetarians, but they really weren't doing the vegetarian thing. And so the people who were doing that said, okay, we'll come up with a new name. We'll call ourselves flexitarians. A flexitarian is somebody who does a vegetarian diet until they go over to somebody's house and they say, hey, we're doing ribeyes tonight. <laughs> we're, doing, we're doing buffalo bison meat on the grill. Uh, wild turkey marinated in herbs and butter. Well, then that sounds good. Sign me up. And my point is, we can't be flexitarians in our faith. Jesus doesn't call us to be his disciples until that moment that something else looks better that's on the table. To follow Jesus is to deny ourselves. To know the Christ is to lay down our lives. It's for him to be both savior and master. Will you stand with me? Oh man, you guys, what's, what's our response this morning? I think, I think the question, let me, just, let me just throw this out. Some of us, we're hearing this and we know there's areas of our lives where we're like, yeah, Jesus, I'm kind of picking and choosing the areas where I wanna be fully obedient, where, where I understand who the Christ is, but man, if I'm fully obedient here in this area of my life, that means I'm going to have to give up this, or that means I'm scared to let go of this. And I'm in that same place too. I wrestle with that probably daily. Here's the beautiful thing, is that God in his grace and his mercy and his love for those of us who he pulled out of that old junkyard and regenerated our hearts has an endless supply of grace for us. And that grace is not based on our merit. That grace is based on the finished work of Jesus that cannot be taken from us. And so if you here this morning like me and say, man, I'm wrestling with these areas. There's areas that I find it's so much easier to know the Christ and surrender in these areas. But then these areas come up and I'm like, that's really hard. Will you just say this morning, God, will you please help me? to not be a flexitarian in my face. Will you help me to be full on in, throw all my chips in the middle of the pile, say, Jesus, take all of me. I surrender all. I trust you with the consequences of being fully obedient. And then I'm just gonna ask the question, is there anyone in this room who hasn't surrendered to the Lordship and, and the fullness of 
Jesus being the Christ. If you, if you don't understand Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, and you've never said yes to Jesus, but this morning maybe you're wanting to surrender your heart, you're saying, I get it. I want to I put my hope and faith in Christ, even though it may be hard. Is there anyone here who would respond? Will you just put your hand up this morning? just going to give us a couple more seconds. Even though it's a little awkward, that's okay. God can handle it. I can handle it. Anyone here who wants to respond to Jesus for the first time saying, I want to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. Okay. Awesome. What we're going to do is we're going to respond in communion and we're going to respond in the beauty of Jesus being the Christ our Messiah, our anointed one, the one who is able to take away our sin and abolish it forever. In, in doing so, we, we remember his body that took upon itself our sin in the cracker, and we remember his blood that washed us clean from our sin, pure, made, made us as white as snow, made us righteous. So as we go to the tables of communion this morning, break bread with a, a friend, a family member, or do it by yourself, but do it saying, Jesus, thank you that you are the Christ, the one who satisfies my sin, and the one who made a way for me to know the Father. And if, if you're part of this church, uh, we also worship now in our giving. There's little boxes on the tables. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to say, God, thank you. I'm laying down all of my life, and that includes my finances. Um, if you're not part of this church, if you're not calling Southlands home, please feel free not to participate in that. But let's do that now. Let's go to the tables and thank Jesus for what he's done for us.